Hello, and welcome to episode 52 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me this week is a first-time guest co-host, Jeff McFarland from HiddenGameOfTennis.com. Hi there, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Good to talk to you. For real. For real. This is the first time. Yeah, we've had many conversations on email. Uh, So, yeah, of course, I know what your voice sounds like. I uh, I suppose that if you don't like mine, you could terminate the podcast right now. It'd be the shortest podcast you've done. Well, there's always an option for all of our listeners. I'm sure that's what some <laughs> listeners are doing one or two minutes into every episode. But so far, so far, so good. Um, as I just mentioned, Jeff is the, uh, the, the man behind HiddenGameOfTennis.com, which is not just a, an analytics blog, but you've got some other stuff on the site, like the, the popcorn scores, um, and tournament forecasts. So listeners, if you're not familiar with that, I hope you'll go check that out both today and regularly in the future. Um, and, and Jeff, before we, we get into this week's, this week's tennis rundown, I know we have a lot of Indian Wells material to talk about. You just have to put this out there. We're both pretty hardcore baseball analytics people before we came along to tennis. I mean, that, that, that's where you, all of this started for you, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, based on what I know about you, I think yours was, you've got a professional side to it. Mine's all uh, amateur, but uh, even even before I owned a spreadsheet, I, um, I I was into the analytical side and, you know, I had the earliest Bill James baseball abstracts. And for whatever reason, uh, you know, and you know this too, it's just, you're just drawn to it. And, uh, and I've done some things with basketball on my own. And it was just, uh, for some reason, I, I was watching the French Open, I think it was in 2012 maybe, and I thought, hmm, I wonder if anybody's doing anything with this on tennis, and uh, and I don't know why I didn't Google it, I just tried to turn a baseball simulator that I had written in Excel into uh, a tennis simulator, uh, manually typing the stats in, because I didn't know that you could uh, get things off the web any other way, I had no programming experience whatsoever except tinkering behind the scenes with Excel, and uh and then you know, just you know, just just kept going. And then I discovered uh, your site that you were like light years ahead of me. And I was like, oh yeah, uh, yeah, no wonder I don't know what I'm doing. Somebody's already been doing it for five years. So yeah, it it, it seems like almost everybody involved in tennis analytics has some kind of origin story, starting with some other sport. I wonder if if someday we'll all be eclipsed by someone who is is a true tennis analytics native. Maybe if someone who was excited at coming after coming out of Sloan last week, they'll they'll be like the first tennis native. I want to say sabermetrician, but that's coming from baseball too. So analyst. Yeah, yeah. We need a we need an acronym that sounds cool. Uh, but it, it, I mean, it's 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 bound to happen. Uh, I think baseball was. It's not just that baseball was a popular sport, which of course it was or is, or maybe it is was. I don't know, uh, but. It's just that the the numbers were available, and you know there are statistics courses taught at uh, I think a large number of undergraduate uh, universities that use baseball as an example. Sometimes the entire basis of the course, uh, and you know you've got a data set that's I mean it's I, I don't know if you could say it's robust back to 1876, but it's it, it's pretty robust, yeah, uh, pretty far back, uh, and you know that's. It just made it incredible to work with, uh, and that's essentially what we're missing in 
tennis, except for you know someone like you who's compiling it essentially on your own, uh, which is uh, you know a monumental task and really amazing. Well, I would love to have anything back to 1876 or really I would love to be working with a sport again that has some kind of consistency going back that far. I mean, that's one of the really infuriating things about working with tennis sometimes is that the, for instance, the aging trends we see now are almost totally new. Like you can't even look at tennis from the seventies or eighties and say, based on how players aged, then we can predict how players are going to age now. Um, Whereas with baseball, like these things change in baseball or any other sport as well. But if you look at aging patterns from the 1920s, you're not going to be that far off, right? I mean, you got, that gives you a pretty good idea of how players are developing now, too. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and, and I mean, you know, internally, I, I don't know about the WTA, but I think because tennis was has always been a little bit disorganized. I mean, they they appear to be organized, and I think it's easy to fall in the trap of thinking that the ATP or the WTA are like the NFL or the or Major League Baseball, but they're not. They're not that uh, tightly organized, uh, and and they don't have as much money. But even internally, they have a hard time sometimes uh, reconciling the records that they have. They they're still spending some time at the ATP, uh, ATP rebuilding uh, just old rankings, uh, which. Uh, didn't necessarily fall on the same weeks that they would fall on now if you were if if you had been using the current system uh, back then and and so you know I don't I don't think we'll ever really get anything that far back and we'll never have that uh, that data set but uh, we can start now and then like you said the the native tennis analysts who come along later uh, will have something like that won't be back to the beginning of tennis history but it'll be certainly a, a lot better than the way you found it. Yeah, and I, I'm, it's good to be optimistic about that. I, I often end up being the cynical, pessimistic one, but it's a good point that when I started doing this in, I don't know, 2011 or something, like I started with, I, I was doing 99% men's tennis. I've always been interested in women's tennis, but when I started wanting to do analytics, then it, men's tennis was all there was because if you want to do anything with match stats, like aces, break points, anything beyond just score lines, there was none for the WTA at that point. But since then, a couple other sites and myself and, and now the WTA is actually publishing this in somewhat in an organized manner. I, I, I think my databases have match stats for women back to 2013, I think. So, I mean, it, it, it when I started doing it, it, it felt kind of hopeless because, you know, you've got almost 30 years of this or maybe we do have almost 30 years for men. So having one or two years for women seemed like just a drop in the bucket, not something you could do much with. But now, five years, six years, like some of the match charting project stats are extending that back for big matches. Um, I mean, you can you can do real analytics with women's tennis now. And that's, I mean, that, that's a huge step that I wouldn't have, if you'd asked me if we could, we'd be doing that uh, in 2011 or 2012, I probably just would have laughed. I, I think it's a pretty big missed opportunity for both of the, uh, the, the the ATP and the WTA, more so for the WTA. And and I understand that not everyone is going to, uh, you know, geek out on this stuff the way that uh, you or I or other people do. It's never going to be the the mainstream, but it is a a pocket of um, of fandom that they could tap into. And the more stats you make available, uh, the more people get into it. The more you build that 
particular fan base. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that maybe we'd have gotten here anyway with baseball because there is so much data, but the fact that they were putting box scores in the newspaper from the very beginning with detailed stats uh, caused people to talk about the stats that otherwise wouldn't have. If you didn't publish the box scores, maybe all they'd talk about is, you know, how big uh, Babe Ruth's middle is or his bicep, whichever was bigger. Uh, But, you know, you could look in the paper and you could see numbers and you could do things with those numbers. I mean, it might have been limited at the time, but, you know, so even before somebody like Bill James or Dick Kramer, who just got, you know, a Sabre Lifetime Achievement Award, any even before those people came along, there was a long history of people talking about batting averages around the water cooler. It doesn't matter. The batting average doesn't really mean what they thought it means, uh, but it, it built a whole culture uh, that was, uh, you know, it was a minority culture compared to, you know, pulling for your favorite team. But we, we don't have that in tennis, and part of that is because the organizations aren't making the stats available. And it, I, I don't know what the attitude about that is. I don't know if it's uh, because they, uh, they don't really know you know, they haven't really thought about it, if they don't really understand it, or if there were, there is a protective aspect the way there is with, you know, we've seen le- recently on Twitter uh, some more takedown notices of tennis TV videos and things like that where they get really protective uh, of those things. And if so, I mean, that's not, a, that's not a good sign. I do feel like internally, at least at the ATP, they've uh, recognized, uh, you know, I mean, the website's pretty good. I mean, if it's got summary stats and it doesn't have a... Hawkeye, all the Hawkeye stuff that we'd want, but uh, at least for every single player, you can see pretty much a summary set of stats for everything that they've done in their career, sorted by tournament, a lot of good filters and so forth. Uh, ATP, I mean, the WTA, I mean, you could look up somebody and, and, and they, they might not know their birth date. And I'm talking about somebody in the top 100. Yeah. I can't remember who I looked up. It might have been, might have been Kozlova. Yesterday, I don't know. I, I don't want to. I I don't remember which example it was, but it was somebody who was playing and is in the third round of Indian Wells, and there was l- no information about her. Oh, I know who it was. It was um, Jessica uh, Pagula. They say Pagula or Pegula. I don't know which one it is, but uh, she's she's playing great. She's on a meteoric rise from where she was a year ago, and the little bullet points that they have for her career highlights there were four bullet points and they were all less than the width of the screen (laughs) yeah that's not very encouraging um yeah it's like the grand slam sites that have headshots for every player that they show on the match pages except they don't have the headshots for every player so (laughs) every slam there's a new embarrassment it's like wow daniel medvedev is in the top 20 now but they don't have a headshot for him yet and i just made that example up they probably do have a headshot for medvedev but there's always somebody who's is shockingly accomplished and well-known and highly ranked who no one figured, oh, maybe the U.S. Open website should have a headshot for this guy or the, <laughs> the, the American who was seated top 10 in qualifying or something. Like, how, th- somebody must have a headshot on their laptop. Like, just, just move it over <laughs> into the right folder. You, it's right there. Or, or just go out to his match and take a photo. Right. My favorite one is uh, is for about five years in a row. I think it's at Wimbledon. There's a, a picture of Borna Chorich. He has to be 13 years old in this picture. <laughs> he, he he looks like he's 5'6", 120 pounds. Uh, I, 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 it's, it's like he's in, I mean, they probably don't have eighth grade in Croatia, but he, he looks like an eighth grader. <laughs> this guy's like a top 20 player. That's, they have the same problem with David Goffin, but that's actually what he looks like. <laughs> 
So, yeah, on, on, on your point that there's this, in baseball, there's this culture of people are always talking about the numbers and they have since the 1870s. I mean, where the WTA is at now is, is worse than what local newspapers were in the 1870s for baseball. But setting that aside, the thing that I think everyone's already interested in is, is records and not even big ones. Like it, we're going to talk later about the, about Federer chasing 110 titles. And that's a, that's a good example, but even really minor things like, for instance, one of the best received things I've ever tweeted was after, after Nick Kyrgios won Acapulco, um, somebody pointed out that he won only 50.4% of points over the course of the whole tournament. And, I was apparently the first person to look up whether that's the lowest ever, whether anyone had ever won a tournament with under 50% of points. And, I mean, it's a pretty basic thing. It doesn't take a lot of number crunching. doesn't take a lot of advanced analytics or a great database or anything. But somebody's got to do it. Uh, and it turns out that there was one instance where someone did win a tournament, winning less than 50% of points. And there's a lot of people who are interested in that kind of thing. I mean, I just on Twitter yesterday also, someone was asking whether this Favrinka Fucevic match uh, had more break points than any any previous match, and somebody looked that up, and there's at least one. I'm, I'm guessing there's more. I didn't dig into that particular topic yet, but uh, but people are always interested in this. Like something crazy happens, so the commentators are going to say, "Wow, this is a lot of break points. They're up to 45," and Maybe Greg Sharko will have it handy and he'll be able to feed the number to the commentators and say, well, okay, this is the seventh highest since 1991. But normally, they all we can do is speculate and say, wow, that's a lot. And in, in baseball and most other major sports now, anytime you or a commentator or a reporter thinks, wow, that's a lot or wow, that's unusual – you can look it up and see, okay, it's unusual, but it happened three times a season. Or this is unusual, and it's the seventh most unusual of all time. In tennis, most of the time, the conversation ends with, ah, that's unusual. Cool. Next point. Right. <laughs> right, because there's so few people who have access or have compiled the, the stats that you need for that. What I'm encouraged by by the, the tweet that sort of asked the question in the first place is that essentially somebody is reading a box score. Yeah, that's true. Um, because, because I'm not, I mean, they may have gotten it off the broadcast, but it's so easy with the live tennis app and everything to just click and, and see some basic stats that, you know, uh, all of this is going to be driven by curiosity, whether it's curiosity at your level or curiosity at the level of someone who just wants to know, you know, that particular thing about, you know, how many points does it take to win a match or something? Uh, but it all begins there. If you don't have that, uh, it, it really won't develop. And it's kind of a chicken and egg thing about you could say that fans want more stats, therefore eventually the ATP will give more stats, for example. Or you could say, well, it'll work the other way. The ATP ought to just make it more available, and then uh, the, the fan interest will develop. I don't know which way it'll go. seems good either way to me. Yeah, it, it is a little depressing that we can still have this conversation in the middle of a tournament that's owned by Larry Ellison, who founded the, <laughs> what, the biggest database company in the world. So yeah. we have this sport that's being slowly taken over by a database company, but we're, we're still ruining the state of analytics. I don't, I don't even think the ATP's database is an Oracle database. Oh, probably not. Well, I mean, it would probably be half the ATP's budget just to pay the Oracle <laughs> customer service fees or however they phrase it. <laughs> That's true. However they phrase it. 
Um, so we probably could spend an entire hour just talking about the state of analytics and how much better it is in baseball and <laughs> so on and so forth. But uh, the first thing I want to talk about specifically because I've got you, Jeff, is um, I don't, I'm not sure ever on the podcast before uh, Carl or I have mentioned the name Alexandra Sasnovich, but you wrote something about her a couple months ago, I think, maybe more recently than that. But she she has this knack for, for losing bagel sets, despite the fact that she's... I mean, she, she's been in the top 30. She's still in the top 40. She has been able to beat some solid players. It, it, it kind of right now, it seems to fall in the category of stuff that's just freaking weird. But how about, can you just talk about this? Fill in all our listeners about Alexander Sasnovich's weird penchant for getting bageled. Yeah, so I, I wrote something about this about, it's been about three weeks because it was just getting really, really bad, uh, where she had been bageled 10 times in her last 73 matches. And that was just uh, me going generously all the way back to 2018, because some of them didn't happen until the summer. Uh, So, I mean, she is three to four times more likely than the average player, average WTA player, to to be bageled in a set. And then yesterday, uh, was it yesterday or two days ago, she was bageled in the third set of her match at Indian Wells, uh, and she has uh, almost doubled the total of the next player on that list, which is, um, I think it's Shesui is the second one. I haven't uh, been keeping up with her bagels because they don't stand out as much. And it's just a really strange phenomenon for someone who is supposed to be uh, on the rise. I, I tried to look to see if there was any real theme between these, you know, because uh, it might be... It might be something like, well, we've got a hyper-aggressive player who just loses it completely for uh, six games. Uh, it, it could be an attitude issue where someone just kind of gives up. But she's losing them at all levels. I mean, she's losing them in the first set. She's losing them in the last set. Uh, I didn't see any of the video from yesterday, so I don't know if there was a, a bit of a, a resignation there at the, at the end. Uh, the matches I've watched with her, she that's not her makeup. She... Uh, does get frustrated, but she doesn't appear to stop competing at any point. But she, uh, w- one thing that's really interesting is she also, and maybe this is just a function of having done it this many times, is she doesn't really get that rattled by it. Uh, she seems to be uh, the same coming out of a bagel set as as uh, having you know lost a set by six six four or any other score. Uh, you know, a little bit frustrated with her play, but not more so. She doesn't seem to be demoralized by it. So it's kind of an interesting combination. Uh, you know, if you, if you told me that, I don't know, Christina McHale was bagel 12 times, I don't know that I'd be that surprised. Um, she has the kind of game that, I, I, that she can be run over. But Sazdovich has good power. I mean, she's just a good player. Uh, but, boy, it just goes away for stretches. And I, 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 I can't explain it. I try to look at every match. The only thing I can think is that, you know, her she has some problems with her serve her second serve becomes uh, very vulnerable visually it doesn't look particularly vulnerable to me and it has a decent pace I think there's just it's just one of those things where and you've probably played matches even at your club like this where somebody has a pretty good serve but they just hit it in your sweet spot and I think that her second serve which is is just a little too centered and even though it has good pace just kind of is right in somebody's strike zone and she starts getting murdered on that uh and 
so anyway, I mean, it sounds like something that she can work on. I, if it was mental, you can work on those things, but sometimes it's hard to weed those things out of young players because your makeup is kind of what your makeup is. But I think she has good energy level, good competitiveness, even after these sets. So I, it'd be hard to believe that this would continue like this. Yeah, it, it, it is funny that that's what, what you said after, I think you said it in the article, uh, or maybe you mentioned it on Twitter or something. But um, but yeah, there's been twice this year that she's lost a bagel set to start a match and then come back and won. But since you wrote that article, I think she's it's happened twice more, or maybe even that's three right. Maybe even three times more. Maybe it was before Doha. But it happened. She lost a bagel set to, to Shea Sue in Doha. She lost the first set 6-0 to Makarova in Dubai, then came back and won. And then it happened again in Indian Wells. So her last three tournaments, she's played four matches and lost three sets, six love. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. And, you know, I sort of I pitted the uh, Shea Sue matches, like the battle for... <laughs> them or something yeah. because uh, I thought you know I think that Shit in the prior maybe in the prior tournament had picked up an extra one and was gaining on her was gaining on Sasnovich but that was all put to bed with the cage match they played and uh, it, yeah so I, I mean I think that Sasnovich is up to twelve times and basically less than a year and a half uh, well, far less than a year and a half if you. If you really kind of whittle down the beginning of last year, uh, 2018 was a convenient place to start the, the discovery, but uh, but it took her a while to get bageled. So I mean, it's a little more than a year. Uh, that's a it's basically one every five or six matches, and she's a she's you know top 25 player. Hopefully, yes, she hasn't quite gotten there yet, but she's. Oh, I um, she like it. What is she at? My site says she's at she's 34, and she was uh, 30 a few months ago. Okay. But okay. but yeah, I mean, there's not really. I, much I was projecting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she'll probably get there, especially if she manages to not be bageled quite so often. Yeah, live stats has her at 35 with a peak of 30. Yes, okay. Um, so you, you mentioned the second serve, and one thing that I, I think fans tend to get wrong a lot is you, you see you see lopsided sets, or you see these these quote-unquote WTA matches where the score is like 6-1, love and everybody laughs and says, oh, that's just the WTA. And and I hate that because it, it, it's this weird, I'm not sure whether that's sexism or almost sexism or veiled sexism or whatever it is, but it, it, it's misleading because the, the nature of women's tennis is so much less serve-focused than, than men's tennis that you're going to get scores like this. I mean, if, if, if a men's match starts to be really topsy-turvy, you might not really see it in the score because it might just be one break of serve and a lot of break points or something like the like the Vavrinka Fucevic match I mentioned earlier. But in a women's match, because because most women don't have those that really reliable way of holding serve, like things can get out of hand really fast. I mean, if you have a bad ten minutes, then as Sasnovich can tell you, boom, it's over. Uh, I mean, on to the next set. You better better turn things around quickly um i mean like i said you mentioned the second serve she, she's a pretty aggressive player so i mean she she has the power to dictate play I mean, do you think there's particular styles of play that that lend themselves to lots of bagels lots of breadsticks in either losing or winning yeah i mean i haven't uh, researched that but I, I suspect that's true just you know just watching the matches you can see that someone just loses their loses their rhythm. Sometimes it's because the other players cause them 
to lose their rhythm. Um, I'm even thinking of um, uh, the ATP match the other day, the uh, Steve Johnson and Taylor Fritz. I mean, I haven't watched that much Fritz, but man, he mauls the ball. I, I mean, I, I don't know how anybody could, when it goes in, I don't know how anybody could get a racket on it. Of course, they're pros and they can. But uh, Stevie chewed him up with, with a slice, and he was never in rhythm. And uh, that was a blowout match. He was gone in less than an hour, or right around an hour, I guess it was. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I think that happens a lot more on the that we're seeing a lot more aggression, I think, on the WTA perhaps than we've, we've seen in the past, uh, especially from the up-and-coming players who um, are taking more chances. Uh, and I think it makes for an exciting brand of tennis. It can be a little bit frustrating, and you hear commentators, most of whom are uh, from an older school of tennis, who you know talk about ratcheting it back. And but you know you kind of play the way you play. You play the way that that got you there, and you do have to make some adjustments. But I mean, you're never going to turn um, Yelena Ostapenko into Andrea Yeager. She's not going to hit moon balls. It's just not what. It's not her style. Uh, and so there are things she can do to improve, but there's also going to be days where it looks like that she can't play tennis um, and that she's just taking a full swing and trying to hit a home run on every ball. And that's going to lend itself to some ugly-looking scores. But it's also amazing, and I'm hoping that because of that, I don't really understand personally the uh, tremendous preference that people seem to have ratings-wise for men's tennis. Um, I think what's interesting, one of the things that's most interesting to fans or should be most interesting to fans about women's tennis is not only the uncertain outcomes of virtually every match, but the way they're playing is a lot closer to the way you play, right? I mean, unless you are a high-level college player, there's nothing they're doing on the ATP that looks like what you do on a tennis court. <laughs> yeah. Right, but I, you know, but you can understand the sort of rallies back and forth and and, and having your serve broken you know, one out of every three times, uh, if you're if you're lucky, and uh, and and so you know, I like that the players are becoming more aggressive, and in the WTA, I'm hoping that that will bring more fans in and have them. You know, maybe it makes it a little more similar to the ATP. Again, I don't really understand the motivations or the desires of the the fans, but if that's one of them, that the men's game is quote more exciting in the sense that they hit the ball harder or hit more crazy shots or something. Uh, that's coming down the pike, uh, I think, for for the women. I think the women's game is much better set up for post-Serena than the men's game is set up for post-Federer, you know, Nadal, Djokovic. Yeah, I'm I'm eagerly awaiting the day that like, there are billboards in Manhattan with Arena Sabalenka plastered all over them. Like I'm, <laughs> I, I am totally here for the Arena Sabalenka era. So in 15 <laughs> years, we will be talking about what the WTA will possibly do once Sabalenka retires. But in, <laughs> until then, I think they're in, in great shape. And I, I think you're right. It's, uh, I, I, I do wonder... It, some of those arguments you just made, like I, I completely agree with where you're coming from. I do think that you could have made some of the same ones for a few decades now about the, the, how how men's and women's tennis relates to the type of tennis you play at the club level. And I guess I, I don't know. I'm not sure anybody knows the, the relative popularity of men's and women's tennis over the last several generations, but it does seem like men's tennis has always had an edge in terms of ratings and people showing up for matches or people paying paying for tickets and so on um but it will be interesting to see if that changes Uh, it may be that they're just more male sports fans uh it it may be something simple like that 
uh, I always think of tennis as being a sport where the fans also play the sport. Uh, it's it's pretty hard to be an NFL fan because you play the sport unless you have 21 buddies who are willing to go out with you every Sunday. Uh, so, but I might be wrong about that. I'm, I and I'm sure there are a lot of people who have barely picked up a racket who are watching, uh, and and I think there probably is some sexism in that. But you know, I, I don't know. I watch the I like competitive matches, uh, and I I really can watch almost anyone in a competitive match, and and the women's matches have more twists and turns. I really don't know who's going to win most of them. Even the even the good players. I mean. I had no reason to believe that Halep would lose to Kozlova, but Kozlova was playing pretty well. Uh, and and if, if something had happened in the second set and she had taken the second set, I could see Halep losing. I wouldn't expect it, but I could, I could see it happening. Um, and it never seems to happen to me when, in, a, in a men's match I, 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 against the, the best players. I, it just seems such a foregone conclusion that they're going to beat anyone ranked lower than them. Uh, and that's why it's such a big deal when they don't. Uh, well, and when they when there is an upset, it, it often hinges on just a couple big moments, which in a way makes it exciting because I mean those those big moments are tailor made for highlight reels and so on. But in a in a women's match, like, every single game is up for grabs, and in in a Federer match, like, if he wins the first service point, if he gets a thirty fifteen, like that game is pretty much over. Yeah, it's and, over. For most of the other players on the men's tours, it's the same thing. I mean, that's one reason why I love watching clay court men's tennis so much because you get all the the really impressive shot making that you always get from men's tennis. But but at least the chance of a break is greater. It, it feels like the games can go either way. But with most players on, on the WTA tour, that feeling is there all the time. Even with the really big servers, like it's in play and. Even if that that Halep Kozlova match hadn't been so close, even I think Halep was up five two in the in the second set before she right. she lost the edge and it went to another tiebreak. Um, you knew it was it was a possibility. I mean, I've watched every Simona Halep match going back four or five years now, so I really knew it was a possibility. I think I wrote yeah. I wrote something a year or two ago about uh, Halep's uh, apparent inability to serve out sets and. It didn't show up in the numbers, but man, it really feels like something's there. But I think that's true. Part of the reason there's, it doesn't seem like there's anything there quantitatively is because it, that's just how women's tennis is. Like the, the level of returning is so good that every point is in play, thus every game is in play, and having a serving up one break, like okay, that's that's a nice advantage to have, but it, it's not a lock at all. Uh, whereas if Federer serving five two in the second set, then I mean you might as well go get in line for the the. I don't know what you're going out to get in line for. <laughs> Something <laughs> that, that idea didn't quite run its course, but but you better beat the crowd. Let's say that there's no point of sitting there watching the rest. Well, I think there's also something to the if if every game matters and you don't you know a tennis match is a, is a long endeavor. I mean you do get up and you know go to the restroom or get something to eat or whether you're there whether you're at home you, you don't watch I mean you you probably watch every point but most people don't watch every single point so if the men's game is going to hinge on a couple of points you better hope you're in your chair for that uh, whereas I always feel like I can turn on a women's match at any stage during the match 
and uh, and I can get into it pretty quickly because anything can happen. Whereas in a men's match, I'm not. If I see that Federer is up six two five two or won the first set and is up five two the way Halep was, I'm not even going to watch that Federer match. There's just no point. Whereas, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm continually baffled that so many so many tennis fans want to see that that you know ESPN or Eurosport one. It's always going to be on the first round Federer match at at a Grand Slam instead of literally anything else that would usually be more interesting to me. Uh, just watch. Well, they'll, they'll cut out of that, and, and if there is another another more interesting match, but they decide to take a break from the Federer match, they'll take you to the anchors. You'll watch the anchors for fifteen minutes while other people were playing tennis until like if Federer's taken even if there's a bathroom break in the Federer match or whatever, they won't switch you to another match. They'll just you'll look at Chris McKendry and some other people for fifteen minutes. They're, oh, Federer's back. We can turn the TV back on. Yeah, man, I can feel my heart rate rising just thinking about it. <laughs> well, so funny. This is only somewhat related to that, but there was a tweet about five days ago. I don't know who it was from. I know Sloan retweeted it. It was about how uh, good Roger Federer smells, both before and after the match. <laughs> now, first of all, I don't know where this insider knowledge came from, but, <laughs> but I thought. Yeah, now we're basing uh, who we like on how they smell. Well, when when that's I, a, I bet that's not in your database. <laughs> no, it's certainly not. When I did the the Knights of the Federer Roundtable podcast a few months ago, uh, one of the four guys who was involved in that, Suleiman Ijaz, he he's a huge Federer fan, and, and towards the end, yes, of this, I could tell. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's evident to, to everyone who listened to that one, or everyone anyone who's ever met him at any stage, but. At the, towards the end of that discussion, he he piped up and said, "You know, there's other factors. There there's there's aesthetic factors or other other things that go into to determining who the greatest of all time is." And I think that's the sort of thing he's talking about. That you know, no one no one can really smell as good as Federer, and thus <laughs> he has this slight intangible edge uh, over over everyone else. But I, well, I, feel, I mean, there, there's no question that the way you play the game and the way you carry yourself and you know the the beauty of your style and and so forth all of that uh is an important part of being a fan it's just the uh undying worship of like the ground they walk on that is uh, hard for me to understand yeah i feel i feel like it for me it makes sense to have that sort of undying worship of monica nicolescu but (laughs) for for anybody else i i just don't understand what it's based on (laughs) that style Right there. Have you modeled your own forehand after Nicolescu's? It's it's too late now. I'm afraid <laughs> it's too late now. To, you well, can't if, teach you anything new. If I if I know when I started my tennis blog, instead of being heavy topspin, it would have been heavy forehand slice or something. So anybody <laughs> heavy looking, side spin. It should have been heavy side spin. That's anybody <laughs> looking for a blog name going into tennis analytics? Yes, heavy side spin. That, that's a good one. Forehand slice. <laughs> um, so you mentioned. Sloan Stevens in passing there. Let's let's talk about her. We, we've been talking about uh, some some unusual, unexpected results, and Sloan has given us plenty of those. She's she's had some great results, and now she's defending Miami, right? She won Miami last year, mm-hmm. um, and she has the U.S. Open from a year and a half ago now. On the other hand, she just lost her first match in Indian Wells to Stephanie Vogela who's ranked outside the top 100, at least until next week's rankings come out. She's lost to Vogela, I don't know how many times, like five times out of six or something like that. Yeah. And 
And Sloan, of course, over the years has had tons of first-round losses. We all know how talented she is. We've seen her at her best. And then she'll turn around and lose six matches in a row against the likes of Saznovich. Um, do you think that... I mean, is... is with Sloan, like I wrote something a week or two ago about this theory that certain players need to play their way into a tournament. You hear this a lot. I didn't find any any quantifiable evidence of that, but I only looked at men's tennis. Do you think that's something that could be going on here? That Sloan needs to get comfortable. That I mean, she's only really she only really plays her best after she's had a few matches and she's moved on to a bigger stage. Yeah, it, it's interesting because you also uh, wrote the article about Kyrgios and how he rises to the occasion and in the, the big moments. But there's a lot of talk also about how he rises to the occasion when he has big opponents. You know, he was so excited before the Nadal match and seemed really focused. And then he had uh, Vavrinka after that at Acapulco, and he seems to really get up for those, but not play well against some of the uh, lower ranked players. And so it's hard for me to distinguish between whether someone wants to it needs to play into a tournament and, and whether they're just not as motivated playing opponents that they should defeat easily. Um, uh, we've always heard this about Serena that she likes to kind of play her way in and, you know, it's kind of almost toying with the early rounds. I don't think we have any question about her motivation. Uh, but Stevens, I, I don't know which one it is. I, I don't know whether she needs to be in a bigger match for it to matter for her uh, or if she really needs to, essentially warm up during the course of the week or the two weeks. Uh, I, I was very, you know, to me, her, her best period of tennis, uh, she had, yeah, she, uh, losing his name, Murray, right? Murray, yeah, her coach. Kamal Murray. Yeah, Kamal Murray. I, I was getting confused with the quarterback who's going to the NFL draft. Um, <laughs> that's why I hesitated. Yeah, so, uh, you know, they had an, an interesting relationship, and he seemed, I don't, know any better than anybody else here whether he was a good coach or not but he certainly seemed to get the results and then and then and he gets kicked out and we see this pretty commonly uh now where a player who seems to be on the rise switches uh horses in in the middle of the the uh, uptick and I, I, to me it just kind of deflated her she was always uh inconsistent before i thought she was much more consistent with him i think it's just hard for her to I think she has a concentration issue more than anything else. And I don't, I think it may have something to do with her opponent is, or it may be that, you know, she just, tennis is just one part of her life and it's hard for her to really uh, fully focus on it uh, to the level that she needs to be a, a, a complete professional. I'm not saying she's unprofessional, but uh, there are levels of professionalism. And, and I don't know if she just, I don't know if she's there yet. And she has a lot of other things going on and she does modeling and, you know, various other things. And, so it's hard to tell uh, how important some of it is to her. Uh, certainly, it's not like Sloan from three years ago where, I mean, literally you could look at her and wonder why she was even on the court because she just wouldn't care for, for whole stretches of time. And I don't see that quite as much as I used to. And I don't see it post-Murray as much as I did pre-Murray. And I don't know if that's maturity or something he taught her or, or what. But there's a little bit of a tendency there uh, from the beginning to – uh, get let down, not care as much, and and that may have something to do with it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's easy to point to to Murray. That could easily be a factor. Uh, and the other sort of concurrent factor is her coming back from the severe injury. That I, mean, I think she came back from that injury with Kamal Murray in her camp and went on to win the U.S. Open and 
it's had some strong results since. And, and this, this usual story there is she realized how much she loved tennis or she, she discovered her motivation when she couldn't play. Uh, it, it makes logical sense. I don't know whether Sloan has said enough to really know that that's where she's coming from with, um, with that reasoning. But, but yeah, the, the other thing I, I, I heard a lot of people saying uh, after the first round loss is that there are certain playing styles that Sloan is, is susceptible to. And in order for that argument to work, you got to figure Stephanie Vogela has to have one of those playing styles having beaten her so many times despite being an objectively inferior player. Do you think that's the case? I mean, Sloane is... She's fairly unique in her style. She has some big shots, but she plays in usually more of a counter-puncher mode. Do you think there's some truth to that, that there's certain types of players who are going to have a better shot against her just because of the way they play? Well, uh, you know, so I just... On your site here at Tennis Abstract, I pulled up her last 52 weeks and, and her losses here. So she's lost uh, 20 in the last 52 weeks. And, and, and looking at the people who beat her, I, I mean, I see a mix of opponents. You've got, uh, I mean, so to your argument, you'd say you put Vergola in there, or maybe Haddad Maya, um, Kanta, uh, Jabur. I'm just looking at some names, Savastava, for example, maybe even Petkovic and Halep. You know, let's say that, or, or players who, uh, not softballer, but but play a more steady brand of tennis and aren't running her all over and, and taking wild chances. But you've also got Pavlochenkova who hits the ball hard. Putenseva is very aggressive. Um, I skipped Svitolina in the uh, earlier case, but uh, Kontavate has a good serve. Vekic is very aggressive. Mertens, I, I watched yesterday. She hits the crap out of the ball. I never realized that how hard she hit like her forehand. Uh, again, Vekic, she's lost to Vekic twice, Potensiva twice. Uh, I, you know, Vandaway, Pliskova, I, I, I'm not seeing a real pattern there. I see all, all styles. Yeah, and I, I, I think this is a question that will need a lot more analysis over the years, and I think it will also get that analysis. But I did something for The Economist. I think it was during Wimbledon two years ago. And I, I think that the headline was even something like, matchups really do matter but when i when i looked at the predictiveness of head-to-head records um it was extremely small so i think that the the power of a head-to-head record was equal to a sort of naive elo-based forecast if the players had played each other 50 times until you have 50 matches in the head-to-head the 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 elo forecast is still the dominant part of the of the of the prediction so that means that for most players, even even something like Vogel Stevens, where it, it feels like they've played a lot if they played each other six times now, that six times doesn't weigh barely at all compared to just looking at their elos. So, in, I, in that same article, I think I broke players down into into quartiles based on aggression score and found that mm-hmm. certain. I think I think that year Kerber was having a particular hard time with one of the quartiles. It's it's. It's tough to know exactly where to draw the line, how to categorize players, uh, but it's pretty weak stuff. I mean, for something that commentators talk about all the time and certain fans so firmly believe in, there's not a lot to back it up. I mean, it's one of those things that it, it can explain a result if you don't have any other way to explain it, but I don't think anybody was going into that 
that Vogel imagines saying, well, she's beaten her before. She's beaten Sloane before. Uh, she has this particular playing style that is kryptonite to Sloane Stevens. Therefore, I'm going to put a lot of money on Stephanie Vogel going into this match. And I, I just, I didn't hear any of that until after, until after Sloane was already losing. Yeah, you know, the only thing, uh, and you're right about, I mean, the head-to-head, I just, I, I barely pay it, unless it's, you know, Kevin Anderson and Burdick or something, uh, where there's clearly something happening there, which I'm not even sure I'd put anything in that, because I don't know when the last time they played, but a lot of those happened in a pretty short stretch. I'm looking at the losses to uh, Vergola here, and, and it would not surprise me if it's in Stevens's head that she uh, lost in Acapulco to her in the quarterfinals when Vergola was ranked 183, but it was a three-set match. Um, before that, we're looking like her loss in Luxembourg was in 2013. I, I mean, I have a hard time believing that a top player is thinking, six years ago, I lost to this person who at the time was ranked 50, and now she's ranked in the hundreds, 54 she was ranked. Um, and I lost her in three sets. Oh, God, I got to play her again. You know, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it just doesn't make, that doesn't make sense to me. It may be that she does give her trouble. I mean, if you... Anybody who's listening who plays tennis knows that there are certain people who can nickel and dime you to death or they just do certain things to you that drive you crazy. Uh, and and maybe maybe that is true with uh, Virgola. I don't see it as a pattern overall in, in Sloan's losses. Uh, and again, I haven't, I haven't studied that. Uh, so I, I don't – I'd be surprised. And if that's the case, then it's a, it's a little strange that she hasn't adapted to it because really your job – is to, as a professional tennis player, is to figure out how to defeat those styles, hopefully with the help of your coach, uh, how to combat those things. I'm sure that, you know, Stevie Johnson's coach, Craig Boynton, spent a lot of time talking to him about, about how to combat Fritz's power. Um, Anna Cohn talked to Fritz about how to combat Stevie's uh, good forehand, terrible backhand, and I don't think Fritz listened. <laughs> so I don't know how receptive... Sloan is in the past I've thought that maybe she wasn't so receptive to coaching uh, you know so a lot of things go into it I, I it's not obvious to me what the issue is there I think there's just a an underlying motivation uh, gap that she may have versus someone say like Halep or Svitolina even I mean Svitolina is not as highly ranked but uh, seems to be extremely focused uh, as does Halep and uh, obviously Serena and some of the other top players, even even Pliskova. So Stevens is kind of in a weird group there because she's in uh, she's in that group of top players, but seems to be the least motivated, in my opinion, uh, of all of them. Yeah, it does seem that way. And and of course, now that we've we've gone on record saying all this, she'll defend her title in Miami, and we'll have an entirely different conversation to have about Sloane Stevens in in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that seems to be her pattern so far. But the the other player who falls into some of these same categories, I and mean, I, I missed the the obvious segue when we were talking about Sloan switching coaches when she was playing pretty well. Um, we need to talk about Naomi Osaka. I know you've had some strong opinions about Osaka over the last couple of years as she's risen to number one and her status as Grand Slam winner. Now she's parted ways with her coach. She She has a new coach with her. Now she had that rough first loss to Mladenovic in Doha or Dubai, one of the two, uh, but then beat Mladenovic in the first round here. So she she's back in the mix. Um, she's defending her title here, so a lot of eyes on her. 
do you think like some of the things you said about about Sloan they sound familiar they feel like things you've said about Osaka in the past that you maybe you haven't been totally sure about her motivation or her her focus uh, and now there's a similarity of of switching coaches after a, a, a strong stretch like this you know, what do you think about Osaka at this stage I think if if Sloan and Osaka were the same age that I might have the same sort of opinion about them motivation wise. I, I think that whatever I, I feel I, I really think that Osaka is it, it's more of a maturity issue. And I'm not even sure it's still an issue now. Um I a particularly bad incident I thought at at Charleston, I think it was last year, uh, where she just you know, she just was tanking. Um didn't want to be there. It didn't seem to have anything to do with the way she was playing because I, if I remember right, she had won the first set. But she just checked out. There was something she didn't like about being in Charleston, South Carolina, and she wasn't going to stay any longer. Uh, and, but, but I think that was a, a, a maturity thing. And, and so maybe some of the motivation issues that I saw with Stevens, say four years ago, I think there's about a four-year difference in their age, Four years ago, maybe you say the same thing. It's just maturity. But I've seen Stevens get to the point where she can be focused and play well, but then it lapses again. And, I mean, you know, we have to be careful about making any maturity arguments for somebody who's 25 because I can't even remember being 25. Uh, so I'm probably projecting onto them something that I want them to have that I myself could not have had. Uh, so let's just uh, peel back at least the, the, uh, the, the level of criticism that I'm – that I'm supplying here, it's all it's all relative to other players. Uh, but you know, I, I thought Osaka had some some motivation problems. I haven't watched that many of her matches since then. I've watched the big ones. I don't see it as much, uh, and so it, it may be that she's just getting more comfortable uh, on tour. And then I was, you know, I think the criticism was fair, but it's probably jumping the gun in terms of projecting what her her uh, upside was. And uh, you know, it's it's. I have to remind myself that you've got people who are 18, 19, 20 sometimes on this tour traveling literally all over the world in a very strange environment that most of us do not ever find ourselves in and having to adjust. I mean, if you think about yourself coming out of high school or, uh, you know, whatever your, your last uh, primary education was, and you come out of that, and then now you're traveling all over the world, supposed to be making money, <laughs> Uh, having to make money. Otherwise, how are you going to continue what you're doing here? I mean, most of us didn't go right into a job. Or if we did, we weren't expected to perform at the very highest level when we were 19 years old. And we didn't have everybody watch us do it. And so uh, I'm not as uh, concerned about Osaka as I was a year ago. And I I think that's just a, a maturity thing. I am about as concerned about Stevens as I probably was uh, before she got hurt. Okay, yeah, that's a good point about uh, about how we think about players' maturity. I, I guess it because maturity is not a physical skill. We we tend to think of of player maturity more on the spectrum of normal people maturity. You can you can be a really immature professional tennis player, but you can't be a professional tennis player with a you know a club level backhand unless you're right. Igor Karlovich. Um, so when we say when we say a player has a bad backhand, you know, like like you said about Stevie Johnson, like yeah, his backhand is not good by professional standards, but compared to you or I, like it, it, if he were just to probably two hand or one hand backhands, he would blow us off the court. Um, 
but it's not good enough at tour level. And I think most of the time when we talk about maturity, especially when we're talking about young players, we kind of have to put it at the same scale. Like the fact that these people can can be thrown into this really bizarre, challenging lifestyle. I mean, different country every week or two, uh, living and traveling with a circle of just a handful of people that you're technically the boss of, um, having to earn money just to you know be able to come back the following year and try again. I mean, that's yeah, it's it's breathtakingly difficult when you think of it about it in those terms and compared to what most of us were doing at that age. And it's it's just a totally different planet. So so yeah, your your quote unquote immature tennis player is kind of like your tennis player with a bad backhand. It's like if, if you're really immature, you, you wash out immediately. I, I don't see how you can do it unless unless you're one of the very 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 small number of players who are so outrageously talented that you do have this bubble around you. But I'm not sure that any tennis player fits that description um yeah and i mean think about somebody like kennan uh who i mean seems to be locked in i mean and there's no motivation issue with her uh and and so everybody comes from different backgrounds and different experiences and so forth and and that affects you know how worldly you are how well you can handle it what we see on the court is that she seems to handle it great i mean for all i know she doesn't handle it well off the court i don't have any idea uh but there's a whole range and and it's, you know, so we're all quick, including me, uh, a little too quick to judgment. I did not like what I saw at Charleston, mostly that it wasn't just a maturity thing. It was sort of the kind of way it happened uh, because, uh, you know, I can tolerate, I think, personally, a little bit more immaturity if there's still effort. Uh, but, you know, those two things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it is an incredibly difficult situation. And, and like you said, uh having to be the boss of people and also be literally a hundred percent reliant on them. Uh, there's a good chance you've never booked your own flight to, uh, Singapore that you've, uh, don't have that. You probably have a checking account that like your father opened for you. Right. But that checking yeah. account is F- FDIC insured to $250,000, not the million dollar check that you just got. Um, you don't have any idea how to buy a stock. Uh, it's just, it's incredible what they have to deal with, really, and they still have to go out and play tennis, and they have to do it in front of us and listen to us all complain about it on Twitter. And, and they probably have to keep getting better. I mean, that, that's, that's really the crowning thing yeah. for me on top of everything else, that if you, are, if you are Yelena Ostapenko and you break onto the scene and win the French Open, then you've got to be feeling pretty good about yourself, both your tennis and you know, your bank account and, and everything you've accomplished. And then what happens everyone on tour watches how you play they think about how to beat you they're all practicing trying to get better if you don't do the same you end up out of the top 20 within a year or two i mean that's how competitive it is so i mean you you can't even stop after an accomplished like accomplishment like that and rest on your laurels you've got to keep getting better even when for some players that's maybe not even really possible i mean some players just can't keep up that's the that's the really well yeah i mean you you can make it to this level with uh, an incredible forehand serve combination, for example, um, but you, you may have never had to make an adjustment because you're blowing all of the other people who are not professionals or not going to be your level of professional off the court. And then, I mean, you think about hey, Steve Johnson again. I mean, this guy is maybe the best U.S. college tennis player who ever played. I mean, based on his record, his, the championships and so forth. I mean, you know, he hits the tour. He can't win a match. 
when you're talking about a guy who doesn't even know what it's like to lose, right? I mean, what, what didn't, hadn't he won like 70-something in a row? with some ridiculous number of college matches in a row. And then he can't win. You know, just the mindset of having to and, – and then, I mean, really, if you think about it, I mean, you can criticize uh, Johnson's game, uh, obviously, uh, on the backhand and so forth. But, I mean, the guy is a top 30 player. I mean, he – you talk about a guy who's adapted. He's got, you know, like his, his backhand is better than Karlovich's, but it's, it's not great. But, man, the speed to get around that thing and hit so many forehands is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, he's one of the 25 best – the 25 35 best tennis players in the entire world with you know what appears to be a terrible backhand so there's that, that yeah it's easy to it's easy to sit here and and criticize but you know with osaka i do think the, there's a uh a, her attitude appears to be better to me i don't understand the coaching change but there's a lot of things that go into that that you know that we're not privy to as fans it's easy to say that she was doing well with sasha and now uh so why cut him but i mean who knows um, you know, Sasha and Serena had a little bit of a run in there. And, and so there, there may be something about his personality that we don't see uh, that just doesn't fit right. And there's something that Carl mentioned a few weeks ago that I thought was a, a really good point that, that for some player coach combinations, there may only be so much that a coach can do for you or so, so many tips they can impart. And it isn't like having a, a manager on in the dugout in baseball where you just need like a steady hand at the helm. I mean, I guess there are probably players who do need or want that. But in tennis, if you're looking to improve, like new voices might be exactly what you need. And even if there's nothing personal, which maybe there is something personal, we'll never know. But even if there's nothing personal at all, players may just need to hear different voices. Uh, yeah, and, I think that's true. I mean, that, of course, Djokovic tried that, so it can it can backfire on you, right? It just basically ditched his whole team, went with the peace and love movement, and then uh, decided that he needed his whole team back. And I always thought that must be interesting to have approached them and say, hey, you know, I, I fired you, but things haven't gone so well. How would you like to come back? I guess you have to say yes. Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, but the I coaching think- thing is weird, because like, you can't explain uh, Muguruza... And her coach, um, that's uh, Sam Sumick. They have a weird relationship. I was watching um, uh, Ostapenko yesterday, and I, I can't think of her coach's name. But, you know, you hear some really good advice on coaching visits, um, and you hear some, you know, too much advice usually. It's not usually, I wouldn't call it bad advice, but they give them 10 points, you know, for the next game, which seems impossible. <laughs> this guy had, like, no pointers. It was just... And if they were communicating in English, and he just kept saying, just do it, do it, <laughs> do it. And I was like, she's paying you for this? The only really funny thing was where he said, he said, you're thinking too much about, about things that aren't there. And she glared at him with that, you know, Ostapenko stare and said, I'm not thinking. And he went on and said a couple of other things. And he's like, he's like so just stop thinking so much. She just cut him off and said, I am not thinking. Uh, touche, Yelena, touche. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. So, okay, I had no idea we were we were going to have so much to say about Saznovich, Osaka, and Sloane Stevens, but I'm glad we did because I, I know the Tennis Abstract podcast tends to end up giving the WTA short shrift. So I'm I'm glad Jeff that you were able to to join us this week and and redress that imbalance a little bit. In our remaining couple of minutes, I want to do do a speed round version of the other things I thought we'd get to talk about. So. 
let's start with Serena Williams. Do you think she's going to win a Grand Slam this year? No. No. Do you think she'll win any more Grand Slams career? 20%. 20% in year-end ranking this year for Serena? Mm, I don't know. I haven't looked at her points and what, what's falling off. I, I can't say. I... I it, She's she's hard to judge. I, I mean, the, the Vika match was scintillating. I don't know if you watched it. It was a great yeah. match. It was a great match. Um, and But a lot of, I think, a lot of it was non-tennis factors. It looks like they're playing great, but of course they're playing great against each other, and Serena hasn't played in months, and, and Vika is not the old Vika. So it looks like an Australian Open final from yesteryear, and it had that atmosphere, and it had that level of fun. And I think it appeared that maybe there was that level of tennis. But I've also watched Azarenka in four or five matches this year, and she doesn't really look that good. She looks solid, but not old Vika. So I, I think because we've got two players who are kind of under their uh, max level playing against each other, it looked to be a higher quality match than it was. It was, a, it was great fun. Um, and then to have Serena uh, retire in the next match, and I, you know, a viral illness, I, whatever that that is, a cold, I guess, is a viral il- illness. It's flu-like symptoms, maybe. Flu-like symptoms, yeah. Um, so that's that's unfortunate. But I, I do think that Serena was playing di- a little bit differently than we've seen, probably because I don't think she is. Pro- she's not going to be in tennis shape because she hasn't been playing the matches. There was a lot more, uh, even more aggression than normal. Um, and a little bit less, I think, less movement and more just, you know, just crushing the ball from a fixed position. Uh, so that's got to change. I just don't know how motivated she's going to stay to to win the next one. And she's got, in my opinion, a lot more competition now uh, than than she has before. Yeah, really, anybody, anybody could fire up and win one of these. She, she's got to get in there before Sabalenka starts winning every slam there is. <laughs> that's the that's the deadline. I say U.S. Open this year, then it's over. No more slams for anyone else until the 2030s. <laughs> I like I say, I am all in on the Sabalenka train. I I hear that, yeah. And so, okay, next Azarenka. What do you think her year end ranking is this year? I think it's going to stay about where it is. So is she forty something at this point? I I can see thirty five. Uh, you know, I don't know what her Planned schedule is. I mean, she looked better against Serena than I've seen her play in any match this year. And whether that's rising to the level or uh, a new step, I don't know. Um, she's clearly good enough to compete uh, with most of the players and give them a hard time. She just doesn't look like the same player as before. And it's it's not so much that I think that she's lost something. I think that the other players have have kind of just kept moving and she had a period where she she couldn't keep moving and it's really hard to make that progress up it's hard like you said earlier it's hard to even keep improving but now when you've gotten behind now you're just trying to play catch up and then when you get there you've got to keep improving because no one else has stopped and waited for you and so i don't think it's ever going to be uh what we saw from her before but it is fun to see her play i I do like watching her play she moves so well it's it's, uh, i like watching her yeah, I, I agree. It comes down a lot to her schedule. But, yeah, it's when she's – sometimes she's she does look so good and you can see a glimmer of, of what made her so dominant. But it is tough to imagine her capturing that on a sustained basis. So one more one more woman to get a year in ranking for. What do you think of Danielle Collins? Oh, man. 
You had to ask me about Daniel Collins. Well, mm-hmm. Collins uh, is a uh, uh, year in, I'll say, 18. And then after next year's Australian Open? Uh, I think she'll be back where she is now in the mid-20s. Okay, so you think you think her next 52 weeks are going to be 52 weeks of top 30 tennis? Yeah, I think I think that she does. She has a the right. She's definitely competitive. I mean, and that is a huge part to me of of sticking in these matches, especially when things go uh, badly. She does a pretty good serve, pretty good ground strokes. Uh, so I think she can hang with a lot of the people that are around her in the rankings and move up a little bit. Uh, but I mean, I don't see her as like a top ten player or anything at any point. And then in these next 52 weeks, what do you think the odds are that she will bagel Alexander Sasnovich? <laughs> well, they're at least uh, one, in, one in four if they play. But, of course, I have to factor in the odds that they will play, and I, I can't do that at the top. You don't, have, you don't have an Excel sheet for that yet? I don't yet, no. Okay, that's what we should work on, the, the probability of random like <laughs> players outside the top 20 playing each other at some point over the course of the year. I hope uh, the bagel goes the other way. I, I'm not a. I'm not really a Collins fan. Or tennis is fine. I, I'm not crazy about her on court presence, and yeah, I don't really I, feel that way about that many players. I like most players. There's just a few that just rankle me, and she's one of them. Yeah, I get that a little bit too. I'm. I, I've been watching more of her tennis lately, just to kind of give her a chance to convince me otherwise. But it hasn't worked yet. And one last one. We we haven't talked men's tennis at all. And I know I said earlier we were going to talk about this Federer chasing 110 titles unfortunately sorry about that not going to happen this week but um your boy philip kohlschreiber next match third round against novak djokovic what's your forecast for that one <laughs> it's a uh seven uh, percent is that I your actual I, forecast no so, i actually haven't run i haven't run it i just said that off the top of my head seven okay. percent is probably it's probably higher than that in the actual number run i think i ran it this morning i'll look while we're continue to talk i'm relying heavily on his 2009 roland garros win <laughs> I, think uh, I, I have think... him as um my match stats gives him a 4.8 percent chance and elo 8.2 so you put them together it's like six or seven so i was yeah i was okay thought. i think my elo is a bit more optimistic i think it has him at nine or something um that's a very bit more <laughs> a very, yeah, a very yeah, one percent more. Yeah. Well, you start. You started with the the four point eight. So oh, that's true. Yeah, it's twice as likely under under yours as as under match stats. But uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, I, I don't. I just want him to play well. Yeah, that's all. All he can hope for. I, I I couldn't tell what I was looking on your website whether this was something you tweeted or something you were retweeting. But but for Cole Schreiber, it's all about staying in the top thirty two, right? Just hanging in there. Yeah, I re I retweeted that. I thought it was funny. I mean, it's it maybe uh, a little bit of a backhanded compliment, uh, but if you, I mean, and I tweeted this uh, maybe it was like a year ago. But I mean, if you look at how long Cole Schreiber's been in the top fifty, uh, I, mean, I mean, you cannot complain about that career. I mean, there is just nothing to. It's it's amazing because I mean, you know, the, the, one of the things I think is kind of cool about it is that you could literally pass a guy like that on the street and have no idea he was a professional tennis player. You say, oh, what's your name? My name's Philip. Oh, okay, you know, whatever. What do you do? Well, I've been in the top 50 for 13 years <laughs> or something. I mean, uh, in the world. Yeah. I mean, most of us will meet, never be the best in the world at anything or top 50 in the world at anything. Um, 
So, except you, of course, you are leading the the analytics pack. On, uh, well, the key the key is tennis. to define the field as narrowly as possible. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> if you, it's like if any you antitrust def- argument. Exactly. So there, so there you go. I, I'm sure that every one of our listeners is best in the world at something if you define it narrowly enough. <laughs> That's right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was at the Paris Masters for a day last fall, and I, I, w- I think I was sitting, it was the Feliciano Lopez-Alex Di Menor match, and because of the, the scheduling, a lot of, of fellow players were at that match. So I was in the corner behind one of the coaches, so it's kind of where the players were gathering. And right across the aisle from me was Cole Schreiber, and behind me was John Millman. And I could see right around the corner from me was uh, Schwartzman for a while. And now that you mention it, like, all these guys who were around were the, the most ordinary-looking tennis players. I mean, Millman's <laughs> yeah. pretty jacked, but he's not right, that tall. Right. Um, Cole Schreiber's small. Schwartzman, of course, is, is small as tennis players go. So... So yeah, I, f- I feel like they didn't stick out any more than than I did, uh, especially since we were all within within distraction distance of Feliciano Lopez's partner. So I, I don't think anybody was looking at Cole Schreiber when they could they could see her, but, or him. I mean, depending on what your perspective <laughs> is, I guess. But I mean, uh, it's not like Feli doesn't stand out. There's a really funny I retweeted this, but a really funny video of them playing um, uh, cards against humanity with uh, Dimitrov holding up the cards and Isner. Curios and uh, Kyle Edmund providing the responses, and there's a really funny response in there about uh, Feliciano Lopez, which I won't give away. You have to have, just have to go watch the video. All right, so now that we've given you some homework, uh, it seems like a good place to stop. Everyone, go go track down that tweet and watch ATP players playing cards against humanity. So. My co-host this week has been Jeff McFarland from HiddenGameOfTennis.com. So everyone, check that out. Jeff, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks. I'm sorry I was so long-winded. We, we didn't get to some of the things I know we wanted to talk about, but um, hopefully we uh, – uh, it, it was fun for me anyway, and hopefully the listeners enjoyed it. Yeah, well, that, it's, it, that's standard Tennis Abstract podcast protocol that we, we have an outline, and we get through half of it, and then we try to race <laughs> through the rest at the end and don't even manage to race through the entire rest. So there were probably like seven doubles topics that we could have talked about, but didn't even bother putting them on the outline this week. So – Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been episode 52 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. Um, We'll be back in some configuration of of hosts about one week from now and wrap up Indian Wells. So I will get back talking to you then.